what data do you need? What is good data? What is bad data? How much of it do you need? What features do you choose? What kind of problems can you solve? It's that to know all of those things, that's not easy. That takes experience and training and that kind of stuff. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful entrepreneurs and leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with John Herlocker. John is the founder and CEO of Tignis, a company that provides a physics-driven software solution for managing industrial assets, processes, and operations. John is a technology entrepreneur and experienced executive with a long leadership history in big data analytics and artificial intelligence. Before building his company, he was the CTO of VMware's cloud management and the CTO of EMC's cloud services division. John is a former tenured professor of computer science at Oregon State University. John, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Avi. Thanks for having me. What did I miss in... Uh, the description of your background and uh, all the wonderful things you've played with in, along your career. You captured most of it. You know, I like to say there were sort of three phases to my life. There was the, the academic phase, or I was a researcher and professor at Oregon State University and also as a grad student. There was the, the big IT phase, like, you know, EMC and VMware, where I was an executive of those companies. And then there was the, the startup phase. So Tignus is actually my third startup company. And, you know, to your point, all of my companies have had this theme of sort of data analytics and data-driven decision-making. So of all the things, uh, let me dive right in with a question I'd like to begin with, which is sure. that with all the things you have done and the, all the things you are currently doing at work, what do you enjoy the most and why? Do I enjoy the most and why? The thing I enjoy most right now, like as you know, if, if you were to ask my wife, maybe what I enjoy most right about work, you know, the thing that I enjoy the most is that is when, you know, people on your team come up with these like truly amazing things, right? That you just never, that I personally would have never thought of or thought possible or that kind of stuff. And so that's honestly when I get the biggest rush is when these folks that are on this team that, that I have helped to create have these breakthroughs and, you know, and somehow I've helped sort of, you know, create the environment to make that happen. I guess that that's kind of the biggest rush for me these days. And, and, um, you know, and, and I'm a bit lucky enough at Tignus that happened a couple of times. I, well, I mean, sort of happening at continuous times, but a couple of times, like very like big, big stuff. And, you know, it's, I was someone just talking to somebody about this. And one of the things I like to create an environment where, you know, I can go to a team and I can say, Hey, I see that there's this sort of business opportunity, or there's this technical problem that that's worth solving. 
And, you know, because I'm a PhD in computer science, I, of course, like to solve the problem myself. And so I'll immediately say, and I think here's how we should solve it. And what I love about this company is that the team will all promptly ignore me, at least the second part. They'll ignore the suggestion I've made about how to solve the problem. And they'll go off and figure out a much better way to solve the problem, right? And, uh, and one that really I never thought of. So I think... It, if I were to, that's the one thing that really sticks out to me of what I really enjoy about work right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Let's just stay with this theme a little more because this one fascinates me. Partly it fascinates me because it's central to my work with teams on strategic innovation. And what I've found is that it's not easy to bring a group of diverse talents and disciplines yeah. achieve great results because more often than not, you can get very smart people around the table and they're as capable as any other group in producing collective stupidity instead of collective wisdom <laughs> and collective intelligence. So I'm very interested, what, what is it you do? What is your philosophy in enabling? How do you enable, as you said, the environment for them to come up with extraordinary breakthroughs? What is it you do actually to enable that? Well, that's an excellent question. And I don't know that I've got the magic, but, but it is something that I have been thoughtful about over the years about, you know, what, in my experience, what I'm seeing and how to change it. And I'll tell you a couple of interesting stories. I had a, I'd say I had an early inspiration early on when I was at Oregon State University. I was invited to, I saw a National Science Foundation solicitation for an interdisciplinary studies program. And I you know, I banded together with some professors in computer science, but also in various geosciences, forestry and geosciences and things like this, to put together kind of a program to say, hey, we want to, we want to bring in PhD students, but we want to cross train them in computer science and these sciences. And so I had a chance to participate with very early on in my career with people who had a very different background, right? And I started to see the value of that. And then that sort of shaped a lot of what my thinking was going forward. And if you even look today, my company today, in your introduction, as you said, we do physics-driven analytics. What that means is that I've got, not only do I have people who are software engineers, which you'd expect from a technology team, but I hire people with PhDs in chemical engineering and physics and mechanical engineering. And what's amazing is by putting those people in a productive, collaborative environment, we are now solving world problems that are way harder than I ever thought that I would be able to solve, right? And that's because I'm a computer scientist. I didn't really understand the chemical engineering or the physics at a deep enough level, but you know, putting these two people together, I've achieved that. So there's a lot to be said, first of all, to just bring folks together, right? In the right environment in a collaborative way. And I know that sounds simple, but I'll tell you a VMware story about, you know, you'd think that simple means everybody does it. That's not true. When I first got to VMware, early on when I got to VMware, I was part of this, this business unit and we would have these quarterly offsites. And at these quarterly offsites, you know, the VP of product management would stand up and say, here's everything that's going on and, you know, product management, here's what's going to happen in the next quarter. And, you know, an engineering would stand up and they'd say what they're doing and then marketing would stand up and say what they're doing. And none of them had talked to each other before, right? 
it's a little bit of exaggeration, but they hadn't coordinated their presentations together. They hadn't coordinated their planning together. Each of them had just kind of like three countries coming together at the UN and laying their like, this is the future, right? And one of my jobs was to launch this new product, build this new product from scratch. And the first thing I did was I created a leadership team to sort of drive the decision-making of this, of the design of this product from the beginning. And I included marketing and product management and engineering and support. They were all on that team, right? And I remember I had to fight. Like the product manager was like, you cannot include marketing, right? Those people should not be involved in early process, you know, early decision-making, you know, the product doesn't exist. I remember this fight I had with product management about how this was inappropriate to bring all these people to the table this early. So there were all these sort of, but we did, we did it anyway, right? And there was just so much information flowing back and forth about, you know, what had to happen once this product launched could help drive decisions like much earlier in the design phase, which made it easier for that, you know, long-term down the road that really made a big difference. And also you, we could show up at these offsites with one presentation. This is what the product is doing. And it, everyone agrees, whether it's product management, marketing, whatever, it's, there's just one presentation. It's not like competing presentations with different stories. And that was an incredibly productive product team that we built there, right? With that tight integration. So there's a lot to be said with just realize what are all the skill sets you need to get the job done and also extend your time frame out a bit, right? Like you may not think you need, you know, marketing, you may not think they should be involved now because, you know, you don't need to do any marketing yet, but you still get them involved, right? So by the time it comes, they're ready because they can also help influence some decisions that you wouldn't have thought they would need to influence. So I guess it sort of starts with that basic insight, right? That sounds a lot simpler. Well, let me try and reverse engineer a bit of what you're describing. Number one, bring to the table those diverse backgrounds, disciplines, process inclinations, all sorts of, not just one vector of diversities, break all the silos. That's number one, bring them, put them together around the table. Number two, put in front of them a big enough problem, a big enough challenge that requires all of their inputs. Number three, produce a process that enables divergent and convergent cycles such that they can integrate and mesh with each other. And number four, build inside the process openness, transparency, psychological safety, sense of value. Make sure that that all the voices are included, even the quieter voices. These are some of those factors. Completely agree on on all of those points. And and I'll call out a few that that we pay, that I have paid particular attention to kind of in my career and particularly at Tignus. And, you know, obviously the, you know, giving people a meaty problem, right? A vision, right? This is really the core of the vision. And I like to tell the story of my fascination with giving people vision started back as a professor when students would come into my office, I'm like, oh, Professor Herlocker, I just don't know, like, what class should I take? And I was like, what do you mean? This seems like a small problem, right? What class do you take? Well, I just don't know what I'm going to do in life. It's like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be, you know, if I'm going to take this route in life, in which case I should take this class, or I should say, I only get to pick three electives, like, this is my only chance. 
And it was incredible stress, incredibly stressful for them. But I developed kind of an answer, a methodology. And I said, look, what's your goal in life? And he'd be like, oh, I don't know. I'm only like 20 years old. I don't know what my goal in life is, right? I said, okay, pick one. And like, but what if it's the wrong goal? And I was like, you know, it's okay. Because here's the deal. Pick the goal. Once you pick the goal, live that like that is your only goal in life, right? That is the only goal, the most important goal I'm going through. I'm going to make all my decisions in the context of that being my goal. And they're like, oh, it's so scary. Like, how could I do that? I was like, here's the catch. You can change your goal tomorrow, right? But until you change your goal, you live like that's your goal, your one goal in life, right? The key is when you make the goal, live like it is. And they'd be like, okay. And so then this particular student I'm remembering, I would say, okay, what's your goal? She's like, and she would say, well, I want to be a professor at a, you know, at a U.S. university. And I was like, well, that's a ambitious goal. But I was like, okay, if that's your goal, then here is the answer to your question, right? Go take this class, go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this. And in my mind, I was like, you know, she'll never be a professor, right? She doesn't have the skills for this thing, right? And by the way, she proved me completely wrong. She's now a professor at a U.S. institution, but because she followed that path, she said, all right, I'm going to go do exactly the things that matter because that's going to be my goal, but they can change it. And so what, so what I realized, which was so powerful, was that people burn so much stress every day long on these micro decisions, Yes. Right. Do I work on A or do I work on B? Do I, you know, optimize this or do I optimize that? Do I spend my time here or do I spend my time there? And these are little tiny decisions. And by picking a high level, powerful goal, right, they can use that as a navigating light as to of all these little micro decisions they make all day long. Right. And so I just wanted to call out your first point is so critical. You need to give people a like, you know, and so here at Tignus, I just gave a big all hand speech yesterday where I said, look, what is our goal? Like, Only there, because I want to go deep into it. Yeah, please. Yes. Just to capture and uh, give you back my words to what you were describing. Yeah. Essentially articulated there one of the core elements of the Create New Future methodology, which is work from the future backward. Imagine a hairy, audacious goal, something in the future, and work backward from it. The insight in the story from that student is actually part of the pathology we see broadly now in the world, is the fear of missing out. People are afraid that if they make a commitment to something, it may be a goal, it may be a career choice, it may be the person they choose to live with, there is always a better spouse somewhere, an imaginary (laughs) spouse. We all know the world is full of better spouses, but guess what? You can make a wonderful spouse, a wonderful life with a spouse you choose to live with. It's not about the perfect decision. It's about being at full with the decision you make. And if you then need to make a different career choice, you make a different career choice. So just what the essence of this story for me is so is an important element of people in in the educational space in the mentoring in the coaching space our job is to afford younger people the confidence that it's all right you actually can't go wrong with making any powerful decision so with that let's dig a little bit into 
your company. What was, you started talking about a speech you gave yesterday, but I will ask an earlier question and by sure. all means find the arc of how you get there. Yeah. Question one is, how would you describe the initial problem you were setting out to solve? And take me just through a bit of the arc of, because you're saying we are now solving much more complicated, much more difficult problems. Take me through that arc, through that story, please. Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a long, you know, I followed a somewhat classic path for a startup company, which is the thing you think you're going to solve doesn't necessarily end up being the thing that you end up getting momentum with. So I started Tignus, you know, there's different ways of talking about starting a startup company. There's why you start a startup company sort of more generally, right, as opposed to go work for a large company. And then there's like, why did I choose to build the exact thing that Tignus is building? I'll start with the latter and we can come back to the former if you'd like. So with the latter, you know, I was the chief technology officer for VMware's cloud management group. And so we became experts at automating, operating and optimizing complex data center applications, right? You can think of it like at a bank, a online banking application, right? There's literally generations of different hardware and generations of software components that all have to work together, much of which at the time I was there was still very manual to maintain. And so we built an ecosystem of my business unit was largely responsible for a software suite that helped automate, you know, operate and optimize these things. So I had this deep expertise in those themes, right? Automation, operation, optimization. And so I was looking around for, I wanted to start a new company. And that's the first part of the conversation we come back to later, why I wanted to do that. And so there were always a question of, well, if you're going to start a company, what is it going to be? So I'll be honest and say that like the decision to, I want to start a startup company came before the, oh, let's go do it here. Right. Like sometimes people say, I want to go achieve a goal. And then they realize the start the way to get there. For me, it was the opposite. I said, I wanted to be a startup company. What would I do? And so I had two things going on. I didn't want to start completely from scratch. Like, but I really wanted to learn something that really pushed my boundaries and challenged me. Right. Something that was different from what I was doing before. And so I, the way that me and my co-founder, Matt McLaughlin thought about this was, where can we apply all these techniques, you could say, into a different domain where we could learn a lot new and also not necessarily end up competing with VMware, for example, because you know, we liked VMware. We didn't really feel the need to come back and compete with them. And at the time, Dell had just acquired EMC. Right. And EMC was actually the majority owner of VMware. So we sort of overnight became part of the Dell family. And through that, this concept of the Internet of Things, IoT, suddenly became a lot more important. And so I had a chance to kind of see a little bit of what was happening in this IoT space from a distance. It wasn't my business unit. And I could see that there was momentum there. I could see that they were going, that there was, you know, wireless networks were becoming more prevalent. 5G was coming. Sensors were becoming cheaper, you know. People in the industry, in the industrial space, were becoming more tech savvy as younger people came in and so on. I could see that there was a big wave coming and that I felt that we could apply our techniques that we had done in the data center space to this. And that was really the base idea when I started Tignist. 
And when we started, the question then was, you know, what is the path of a startup company, right? Because you can't, you have to set very precise problems you're going to solve the focus on those kind of things. And, and that actually is a much more challenging problem, it turns out. And so we went through. I would even say what, what I've heard often from founders, that the first biggest mistake many startups make is they don't find a narrow enough problem. In other words, they go and try to address a broad problem, which is actually made out of several problems. So how was that part of the consideration? Oh, it's, that's a fault that I have 100%. <laughs> I try and solve problems that are way too big and I don't break them down small enough. And I would say that's what we did at Tignus. Uh, but you know, I think there is a trade-off, right? I think on one hand, you will see people push for this ruthless focus, right? To get your problem down to a micro level and just solve that. But I also think it's harder to really change the world, right? You know, if you focus too small. And so I have a sort of an intermediate belief, which is you need to have a big hairy goal, right? That's like significantly encompassing and then find ways to, you know, to, to iteratively work your way through sub problems that take you towards that goal. And that has always been the case in sort of the projects that I've taken, right? It's like I chase the billion dollar opportunities. And then it's actually the hardest part is not identifying the billion dollar opportunities. It's identifying the, you know, $50 million a year opportunity that gets you on the way there or something, or the $50 million opportunity gets you there. And that honestly is my biggest challenge too, right? How do you pick the small piece and how do you monetize that small piece? And, but make sure that you keep put laying down, you know, bricks, you know, of that foundation that take you to that larger goal. And, and I think that's where you start to see divergence, like in terms of advice out there about how to handle this, right? Most startup things you'll read, it'll be just ruthlessly focus on one thing, right? And eject everything else and take a big risk and go for it. And, you know, my strategy has always been a little different, right? I tend to kind of cast a little bit wider net when I first start these companies, because it's really hard to predict sometimes where you're going to get some initial traction, right? And furthermore, when you, you're casting a wider net, you're still, the net is completely encompassed within the the scope of the big Perry problem you're going to want to solve. So everything you're doing in this net still takes you forward towards that big goal. Just the question is, what are the monetizable subunits that you focus on early on? And so I, I start out with a relatively big net. And then as time passes and my money just decreases, you know, you focus in on the ones that seem to be getting the most traction in the market, right? You're getting the best customer feedback. And that's exactly how we've done it. The caveat there is that is a strategy that only works if you're well-funded, right? You have to be kind of, you have to have a fun, you know, so we were a venture-backed company. We had some money to spend to kind of wait for that net to catch fish, right? Whereas if you're coming in with no money whatsoever, eh, that's maybe not an option. You're just going to have to pick something and jump off the cliff. So with that, say a little more than about the path with Tignis and what are the problems you're solving today? Yeah. So, you know, fundamentally, we're trying to enable the next generation of, of industrial process control. We're trying to enable autonomous industrial plants. And those industrial plants could be the chiller plant that, you know, keeps your university cold, or they could be a power plant, or they could be a nuclear power plant. If you look at it, there's like, we're building cars that drive themselves, 
right? In New York City of all places, right? And if you can build a car that drives itself in New York City, you can build a chemical plant that, you know, runs by itself. That's actually a much easier problem to solve, but we haven't, right? We're significantly further behind in the industrial space. And so at Tignus, we want to create those enabling technologies, those enabling platforms to move the industrial automation space forward to take advantage of this. Why is this important? We're gonna see there's huge amounts of inefficiency like throughout the manufacturing ecosystem, throughout the industrial. And you know, just looking at power, you know, energy efficiency, power utilization, sustainability, right? Alone, there's massive places to improve. You can significantly improve safety, right, in these cases. And then I haven't even gotten to also profitability, right? You can also improve profitability in these cases. So there's there's huge opportunities here to be had in this space just missing these enabling pieces. And so we at Tignus are looking at, you know, what are the gaps between where the industry is now and how do we get there? And then how do we enable sort of filling those gaps, whether it's us building our own technology, whether it's partnering with other companies in this space to get that technology, and then actually demonstrating the effectiveness of this, you know, in real plants, whether they're oil and gas refineries or semiconductor fabrication plants or large chiller plants. Those are three categories that we're in today. So it's been a couple of three years that I've heard in various companies where I help mostly the Fortune 500 companies, conversations from senior teams about a future, a distant future, Sometimes they call it industry 4.0. Yep. Sometimes they call it uh, dark factories. Tell me how much of that vision is true and when will it arrive? Mm-hmm. Are we talking the next five years? Are we talking the next 10, 15 years? And which is the unique part that you intend to play? Yeah, I think you're going to see it happen in some select areas, even just over the next five years, right? But that'll be very select, right? For the most part, the you know, there's several challenges. Uh, I would say the biggest challenge is actually a people challenge. If you look at these industrial plants, I mean, just give an example. So we did a lot of work in these large mechanical plants. So think of providing air conditioning to Abu Dhabi size plants, right? Like football fields in size, huge chillers, all this kind of stuff. If you look at that industry, there was a report that said that the there's more people above the age of 70 than below the age of 30, right, in that space. And what does that, and furthermore, so these are all folks who, you know, you grew up and were educated before computer technology was a dominant thing, before the internet existed and all that kind of stuff. And so there are some of them that are become tech savvy, but for the most part, they were trained to have that expertise and they didn't grow up as digital natives, as we like to say. And but now they're retiring. Like I said, the average age is you know, 70 or so. Right. And they're retiring. and They're being replaced by younger people. So and that is true across all of these industries. Right. You know, reaching from nuclear power on one extreme, you know, all the way to heating and air conditioning, you know, in your building. There's this massive refresh of people who are the operators. And so that is, you know, that has one of the things that's really created a lot of resistance for this digital driven sort of transformation of industrial stuff that's changing. And that's one of the reasons why I'm optimistic. 
but there's still the problem of equipment, right? So much of this equipment is even older than the people I was just talking about, or, you know, it's, it's decades old equipment. It's not digital, et cetera. And so it doesn't have the sensors, you know, industry 4.0 really dependent on sensors that can measure what's going on, actuators that can control what's going on. For somebody that doesn't know what industry 4.0 is, how would you describe it in a simple way? Yeah, I mean, you know, industry 4.0 is this vision of factories that are highly automated, right? That you have, and how do you automate a factory? Well, you know, how does a person operate a factory? They go out and they observe how things, they look at their scent, they look at their dials and gauges, and they look at what's going through and they make a decision about a change they're going to make, or they listen to hear, like, does everything sound okay? That's how humans work. And so the idea of Industry 4.0 is that you start automating this, uh, this factory. You put sensors in. So where a human would listen, maybe you put a sensor up that listens. You know, where, where a human might look, you put a camera up that sort of looks at the products as they come out. Where you might walk over and put an electrical probe into the system to see how it's going, you put a 24 by 7 probe that continually reports the, temp- the temperature or electrical power. And so you create that digital infrastructure to, you know, so that there's, you can automatically observe what's happening in your industrial ecosystem. And that really stretches not just from the factory floor, but the whole supply chain, right? You have data, sensor data, or data on when shipments are arriving. Anyway, the key is it's a digital transformation. You get all that data in one place, and now you can start to create primarily automation, right? I can make automation. Would it be fair to say we make the factory intelligent first, digitized, intelligent, and because of that, automated factory. That's correct. You know, to really automate it, you have to first digitize it, right? And, you know, they're often in between sort of full, you know, full automation is a dream that is happening in very few places, right? But there's lots of places in the middle. You can monitor equipment and detect when things need assistance, right? Before you would normally notice. And that helps improve the reliability of equipment because you can get it when it starts to vibrate, but before it completely shuts down, for example. You can also optimize things like for in an oil refinery, for example, you might put sensors on the data and then be able to measure the quality of the output better. And that enables you to maybe make better decisions about what type of crude oil to put in the first place to optimize your output. So there's a variety of ways that industry 4.0 can add value, but fundamentally it's about, you know, digitizing that factory, right? And then being able to make, you know, analytics and automation on top of that digital infrastructure. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how do you address questions that every once in a while will will surface that essentially this will continue the march of putting people out of work. And I imagine that part of the answer may be the safety and the quality, but how do you address that social challenge, really? Yeah, so if you look at the manufacturing space, right, if you look at the mechanical space, uh, well, let's just take the mechanical space, right? This is your heating and air conditioning and stuff. Uh, This is a you know, whether you're doing that in a single building or you have a large plant that generates that for a district. And this is where I have a lot of experience, but, but I believe the same thing is true across most of these plants is there actually aren't enough people to hire. Like we mm-hmm. cannot actually find people with the skills who know how to operate a mechanical plant. They don't exist. It's, 
The problem is not that there aren't enough jobs for them. The problem is there aren't enough people to fill the jobs that are already there. This is sort of a little realized sort of element. And I think that falls true for sort of the sort of technical and engineering roles in almost every single heavy industry or every manufacturing plant, right? That, and I think, you know, I don't have the hard data to back this up, but I think, you know, what most likely happened was we went through this phase where computer science was so hot and IT was so hot that that was, you know, where did people go before IT? Well, they became engineers. That was the hot thing, right? They became mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, all that kind of stuff. With computer science, everything else was blocked out, right? You know, there was so much of a gold rush in computer science that anybody, that was what you were supposed to do if you were smart, right? And so there just weren't that many people who went to mechanical engineering and to chemical engineering and that kind of stuff. And so there's this huge, so anyway, it's not, you know, right now the risk is not putting people at the work. The problem mm -hmm. is automation in some cases is being accelerated because they don't have anybody to actually do the work. <laughs> yeah, very, very good to know. Very important to know. So if you take a step back, how would you describe the long arc? Where are we in the AI evolutionary journey? Are you familiar with the, the overshoot, undershoot syndrome? I'm not familiar with that, uh, no. The, well, there are two ways to tell that story. The first is when I was trained as a, as a fighter pilot in the, in the Israeli Air Force, the first time ever I came to landing practice, what did I do? I produced an amazing overshoot. I was still over the runway, half the runway when I was trying to land and, and the instructor needed to scream in my ears, what are you doing? Go around. What did I do next time? I produced, <laughs> produced a great undershoot. So Peter Drucker observed that a similar syndrome happens with technological cycles. Yeah. We have a cycle. We make wildly ambitious predictions that overshoot its development by far. But then we become cynical and we yeah. undershoot its belief. It, it also what you will see with a bull market and a bear market. Yes. So in some way, the AI promise has been around even from the 80s and the 90s and yep. continued to under-deliver. Yep. And my question to you is, is it fair to say that we are, over the last few years, we reached this transition point where people now became cynical, right. not really believing anything, but your company and other companies are about to over-deliver against yep. cynical expectation. What in this the way I tell the story is on the money or not at all. It's funny. When you say that, I can't help but think of an analogy in control systems, right? So that's what we do is we help industrial control systems. And if you've ever seen an industrial control, I mean, actually think about your, the temperature in your, in your room, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. It doesn't, you know, it goes up and it, it, like you say, I want my temperature to be 68, right? Well, it doesn't ever stay perfectly 68. It starts out at like 65 and then you turn the heat on and it kind of goes up to 70 and then it comes back down to 66 and it goes back up, right? And so part of what we do at our at Tignus is we are building control systems that, you know, the tighter that window is, right? So instead of, you know, 66 to 70, I can get it to 67 to, to 69, right? The tighter you make that window, you see benefits all around, right? You can now chain higher efficiencies, greater safeties, all that kind of less equipment wear and so on. But I love the analogy though. So in some sense, you know, you have the same thing with technology ideas. 
And so you nailed it. Like AI was completely overshooting initially, right? Way back, you know, when in its early days, they were going to build general purpose AI. And, you know, some of those companies are still working on that. And then there was this great cynicism where nobody did AI whatsoever. And then there was sort of the rebirth of machine learning as a subfield of AI that was much more statistical, much more numerical, much more practical. And, you know, and then there were some great successes, amazing successes over the last five years. I mean, the number of advancements in AI have been amazing over the last five years. And I think though we're back a bit of an overshoot, right? Mm. Right. And it's largely driven by the gold rush in the industry where everyone's calling themselves AI because they think AI will sell more. And then you have, you know, a lot of salespeople going out saying AI is going to do these things. And so I think we're a bit more in an overshoot mode right now than, but, but I also like to think that our process window is tighter now, right? We're not overshooting by as much as we used to, right? And then as we pull back, we're not going to pull back as much, right? We're sort of converging towards the reality of what's possible. So let me ask two questions about that. First, uh, just a general question. What then would you say today are some of the misconceptions and misunderstandings that the people, the public will have, not even the learned people about machine learning and AI? Yeah. And then if you can build from that to, so where are the true frontiers now? What problems need to be solved such that we see truly game-changing applications? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the... The simple answer to that is that it's on the boundaries. Like there's people who feel like in terms of misconceptions about AI, right? So one of the the most significant misconceptions about AI is sort of the overshoot one, right? AI is magic, right? Like you just buy, you know, and mostly you'll hear this from the software vendors, just buy our tool and you can literally predict the future before it happens. You know, obviously that's not true. If there was actually a tool that could predict the future, well, they wouldn't be selling it to you. Let's put it that way. So I think that actually leads to some of the challenges that we experience in AI because people become, you know, suspicious because they hear this sort of language. AI could do all these magic things. I would say now I'm seeing a lot. The other misconception I'm seeing is all the way on the other side, which is that AI is easy, right? It's like, oh, you know, I can just take a Coursera course on machine learning and deep learning, and I'm going to now go, you know, walk into a job and start, you know, being productive in AI. And that, that is also generally not true, right? That, that AI is, you know, yes, the tooling and the documentation and the training has dramatically improved, right? And so we can get people up to speed, but there's still a lot of complexity when you start solving real problems, right? It's not as simple as just take the tool, take the hammer and smack the nail and you're done, right? That's the Coursera approach. I, I you know, take something out, I smack the nail. You have to, you need people who have spent significant time trying this and running into problems and solving and all that kind of stuff. So I'd say in terms of misconceptions, those are, they sort of lie into both of those, right? You need to say is like, hey, AI is not magic. And in fact, when most people say AI, they mean machine learning, right? right? And machine learning is a numeric, it is a mathematical, you know, a statistical particularly, mathematical, but particularly a, a probabilistic one. But it's just, you know, numeric crunching. So it's not magic. And it's not actually like the concept's not that complex, right? It's like, okay, 
I have a function that maps from these inputs to these outputs. And what machine learning does is learn that function, right? Given training examples. That is machine learning, right? Fundamentally, it's not particularly complicated as a high thing. And so all the complexity is really just the mechanisms that are most effective in learning that once you have the data. But also, what data do you need? What is good data? What is bad data? How much of it do you need? What features do you choose? What kind of problems can you solve? It's that to know all of those things, that's not easy. That takes experience and training and that kind of stuff. But it's also not magic, right? In the way you're describing it, you, you're demystifying a bit the ideas and imageries that people have about intelligent robots that will almost uh, pretty soon be able to communicate with us clairvoyantly. We are, we're not even getting close to that. You are disabusing us of some of those fantasies. That's right. Now, I do want to say that there are some pretty seemingly... There are some pretty impressive things that you can, you take that basic idea of you just, you have inputs and you're trying to predict outputs and I just have a box. I'm going to learn that pattern, right? What's impressive is the sophistication of that function that can be learned. And so, for example, we are building internally using something called a class of machine learning called reinforcement learning. We are building a box that can control like an oil refinery, Right. Like it will literally make decisions on how to control the oil refinery based on sensor data coming off of that. And so it's pretty sophisticated. That's not the same thing as like, you know, a human like <laughs> agent that talks to me. Although, you know, I think eventually we will have things that look like that. But but right now it's more practical to do something like I'm building something that's going to control an oil refinery. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Let's um, trace back to where you started and, and you suggested that you actually had this impulse of wanting to have your company. Even yeah. if, What is the birth point of this impulse? When do you become aware of the desire? How does it you catch me up on that trace? In sure. Well, for me, I clearly remember when this happened. Uh, I was a PhD student at, or at uh, University of Minnesota and... I was part of a research team that built the very first collaborative filtering recommender system. Now that's a mouthful, but the simple way of that is, you know, on Amazon, when they say people who bought this also bought that, <laughs> right? We were actually the first team to ever build a system like that. We built a system that recommended Usenet news articles. Hey, if you like this article, you might like that. If you don't want to use that news is you can send me an email and I'll explain it. But it was it's what we had. Actually, it was pre-internet, pre-web days. That technology, my advisors started a company. Now, I was not a co-founder. My advisors started a company to commercialize that technology. So I had that connection to that company. It was some of my IP was licensed to it. Some of my intellectual property was licensed to it. And so even though I wasn't uh, a participant in that company to begin with, I saw it happen. I saw them raise money. I saw them... You know, I saw them form this company. They got a VC investor. I saw them sign up Amazon as the first customer, right? So Amazon, we were the first provider of recommendation technology to Amazon. So I saw that growth happen. That company eventually, it was a company called Net Perceptions, and that company eventually went public. And so I saw that whole arc and, and even spent a couple of summers working for them, mostly writing patents. So I got a chance to kind of see what the startup life was like a little bit on the inside. And so... That just hooked me. I was like, wow, like, 
And some of it was luck, right? I got a chance to be there at the very beginning when the IP was created. I got to see it go through every place all the way through to an IPO. And, and so I perhaps had this, you know, imbalanced view of how startups actually work <laughs> because most startups do not get to IPOs. Yep. Let's just be honest, but it was enough to hook me. And so, but what was interesting was that I had spent my whole, well, when I was a undergrad at Lewis and Clark College, I was so amazed by how impressive my professors were at Lewis and Clark that I decided I wanted to be a professor. And so, you know, I had set that goal. Remember that audacious goal? I am going to be a professor. That's my life, right? And so I was just marching towards that goal. And so at that time, when my advisor started that company, I could not be distracted, right? I was going to be a professor. And so I followed through and I got that job as a professor, but but I did not pass through unscathed, right? I became sort of addicted to this concept of startups. And so initially I kind of established myself at Oregon State as, a, as someone who was really connected with technology transfer, right? Of taking, you know, technology, you know, I had this little mini success, right? I had been participating in this IP that got transferred out. And so I continued to sort of establish myself as an expert in technology transfer then spun out a couple of companies while I was there. So I, this that was kind of the first two startup companies. And, uh, and so then, and through those startup companies, I learned what it was really like to actually be in the startup, right? But each one of those experiences, while they weren't always, you know, all of them were reasonably successful, there were also lots of things I did not know, <laughs> right? But I guess they all just kind of fueled my enthusiasm and it just kept growing, right? Like each time I would try and get a little closer to six to a high success. And, but then I would say, oh, I just didn't quite get it right, you know? And so I got to go do it again, right? And uh, well, the power in your story there is the greater luck often is being in the right place at the right time and no around the right people because the early exposure and the opportunities, the formative experience opens so many doors yes yeah in some sense uh there's a lot to be said for having a irrational confidence right that you know you have the right experience you have you know what do they call this bias the survivor bias right like you have the survivor bias but i don't think that's a bad thing in entrepreneurship i think it gives you this irrational confidence that encourages you to make these jumps and take these leaps right and you know, because you think you can. And I'm not sure it really matters if there's a good reason why you think you can, right? What's just important is that you do think you can and that you're also very, but at the same point in time that you respond to the stimulus, right? That as you see something's not working, you can change it. So, which brings us to this next question, which is, it's one thing to be a brilliant technologist with even very smart breakthrough ideas. Yep than to be an, an effective entrepreneur all the way to being becoming an effective CEO. What would you say the one or two or three top lessons, top insights for you on that journey of becoming an effective CEO where essentially it's about getting results through other people? Well, I think the jury is still out on whether I'm a <laughs> CEO, but, uh, but we'll keep our fingers crossed. Uh, it's so far so good. So... I would go back to some of the things I said at the beginning, which have to do with the people, right? Is that when you're, particularly what I've realized is that I am not the best at anything, <laughs> like at anything, right? 
I, you know, I'm a good, you know, Renaissance guy, and I know a lot about a little bit about a lot of things, right? But I'm not really the best at anything. But to sort of win in this hyper-competitive global, you know, entrepreneurial environment, you don't win by being, you know, mediocre at lots of things, right? You win by being the best at multiple things. And um, so when you think about that from a company view, the way you win, you know, because you're not the best at, at anything, maybe one thing, you really have to, you have to get the right people and you've got to make sure that the people who can become the best at certain things, and then you've got to give them an environment where, you know, they, I think you use these words, they feel comfortable, you know, contributing and taking risks and sharing crazy ideas and, and taking leaps of faith. And, and you also have to create, and also, I guess, people don't start out being incredible right away necessarily, right? So you have to create the environment that they can grow into that skill. And so, you know, you'll probably hear this from most CEOs that like one of the most important things they do is hiring, right? It's like, uh, and so I've stolen this framework from a guy named D Hawk and he's the guy who created Visa. I didn't really even know who he was and I can't remember like, but then somebody pointed me to this and I was so inspired by it. I use it for all of my hiring, but he has this sort of this hierarchy of here are what you're going to hire for. Right. And the number one is integrity and then motivation and then capacity and then understanding and then knowledge. And then eventually you get to experience. Right. And so if you think that the, the way you win is by having people who are the best at different aspects, you know, going back to bringing people different skill sets together and then getting the best of each of those, right? You know, you don't have to start that way. You can't always find the best in these things. So you have to hire people who have the raw material to become the best, right? In whatever you put them at. And so, you know, but number one, they got to have strong integrity, right? And, you know, they've got to be highly motivated. And I love what DeHawk says. DeHawk says was, you know, without integrity, motivation is dangerous, right? You know, and that's why integrity is the first most important one, and then motivation, then capacity. Are they smart? Can they really process these new things? And then understanding like, like when they do get faced with things, do they really develop a deeper understanding of what those things were, right? And then did that result in greater knowledge? And 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 so that's how I screen people. I actually I ask questions to track each of those characteristics. Are they, do they have integrity? Are they motivated? Do they have capacity? Do they develop understanding, right? Do they have knowledge that's relevant to me? And eventually do they have experience? And so far so good, right? I guess is what I could say. You know, you hire the right people, the right raw materials, you put the environment where they can succeed and grow and feel safe and feel like they fit and then empower them to kind of create great stuff and, sort of aim towards a common goal. What are some of, of the core management practices or rituals that you established in the company yeah. to create that kind of collaborative environment? I would say the, one of the most important ones, if not the most important one, is we are constantly doing postmortems on everything. <laughs> like, and so one of our key sort of business, you know, one of our key sort of company. That, that John, in my Air Force training language is, is the debrief culture is one of the key elements that I bring to senior teams. Whether we succeeded or failed, if, yeah. if we did not debrief, we wasted the opportunity. I never heard that term debrief culture, but that's exactly right. You know, we have 
you know, the way I like to tell it to my team is that one, as a team, in fact, if there's one thing that's more important than others, it's that we are continuously learning, right? Because if we're continuously learning, then we will, we're guaranteed to be amazing at some point, hopefully in a time window that's short enough that it matters. But regardless, if you're given an you know, arbitrary timeline, eventually we're going to be amazing, you know, as long as we're increasing in this direction. And, um, you know, it's amazing what these fault-free postmortems really create, right? Which is, you know, and so we have a template for it. So we have a template, you know, and it's, you know, you can Google, it's kind of, it's a, it's a thing about agile, right? Like, you know, agile is very popular with this. At the end of a sprint, you kind of say what went well, you know, what could be done better. And honestly, if you just each time, every two weeks or every week, or it doesn't really matter what the time thing, every project, if you just sit down and say what went well, what could have gone better, and then you pick something you're going to do to kind of address one of the things that could have gone better, even if it's just one thing, right? Like, yeah. And then, you know, I think there's a lot to make that process work. You have to, you know, you create an environment where it's sort of blame free, right? People could say, well, you know, I did this and that wasn't really a great thing because we don't have visibility into what everybody's doing super well. And so giving this sort of this blame free culture where people feel comfortable saying like, I made this terrible mistake, right? And, and then we can all talk about well, what kind of controls can we put in place so that other people besides you are less likely to make that mistake in the future. And I suspect this is a lot of what you did with the military too, right? You want to figure out how to sort of put those, what changes do you put in your methodology and controls? Yeah, exactly. So one of the other elements I bring to senior teams when we talk about the learning culture and the pivot from even what became popularized with the idea of growth mindset, but into a pivoting into a learning mindset. I don't need to know it all. I need to continually learn it all. Yep. Is that what we talk about are the four stages of adult learning. And when I go through that, the emphasis is that there are three areas where we leave money on the table, allowing the, the learning loop to be broken. So step one is I receive the new information or the new insight. Step two, I validate it. Step three, I move into application. I run water through the pipe. And step four, I take ownership of the learning by teaching it to everybody else. And what we find is the first place where the learning loop gets broken is people break it either after step one or two, which means the learning remains intellectual. We just, it's a concept. We, we fail to move into application. So when you were pointing to what is the one thing you will do different tomorrow, yeah, that yeah. is the move to step to, to stage three. The second area where the learning loop gets broken is when we skip phase two. We come up with a new insight, new idea, and we rush to application without actually validating, only to discover that we are executing on divergent path. Hmm. But the third place, the loop gets broken, and I've seen it with the most admired companies in the world every day of the week, is we pause the learning loop in stage three. We fail to commit to take ownership by teaching it end-to-end in the enterprise so everybody knows about it and we are all truly embracing best practices. When we truly develop a rigorous learning culture, we apply those four stages and there is a sense of commitment to that kind of an evangelizing, internally evangelizing effort. Yeah, I think that's a great, and that, I think those are insights that, that I don't know that we have perfectly 
mastered, particularly that last step of like, you know, taking that and spreading it. Now, we're a small enough company that kind of happens naturally, right? But it won't be long before that won't anymore, right? When there's, you know, engineering is broken up over enough units that they don't just sort of naturally spread. How do you continue to invest in yourself, in your own development, in your own growth, so that your team can recognize, well, not only is he smart or not only is great CEO, whatever they say, but you, he is continuing to learn and evolve as a human being, as a leader, as a professional. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I can tell you what I did recently, which is that, you know, I was, you know, I sat down and was thinking about like, what is it that I do for the company? Like, what are the role distribution in the company, right? And so increasingly I hire such smart technical people that my job, even though I have a PhD in computer science, it's, no, it's less and less my job to innovate technologically. And increasingly my role is to, you know, find the money, right? Like either investment money or revenue opportunities or, you know, or I close that money. And I kind of, so I did a self-assessment about what was going well and what wasn't in that space. And I realized that sales was in my main weak place. I was, you know, closing deals and that kind of stuff. And so I actually signed up to take this sales masterclass which was, you know, a, a quarter long sales masterclass. And it was like going back to school. You know, I had to watch, I had to watch like, you know, lectures. I had to read books. I had to show up to sort of class meetings. Uh, and it was fantastic. I think, you know, I learned a lot about sales and that kind of stuff. And, and so first of all, so it was transformative me, I guess, in terms of my approach for talking to customers but, you know, it's funny you mentioned the second part, which is letting other people know that I did that. That wasn't something I did intentionally. It was just that as I learned stuff, I became so excited about it, right, that I would share it with the rest of the team. Hey, my sales coach just told me that, like, you know, I learned this new technique. We should do this, this, and this. And so indirectly, like, the entire team, like, knows I'm doing a sales course because they've all heard me, like, talk about all this exciting stuff that I'm learning. You were demonstrating to them that you are prepared to swallow your pride, practice humility, and that ultimately the message you communicate when you do that is value is more important. Value creation to your team is more important than your ego. That's a huge, big message. That wasn't intentional. Yeah, I was just excited about it. <laughs> With all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Oh, man, what was I doing when I was 25? Well, I won't repeat any things I've already said, but there's something I haven't said yet that I think is that I have discovered really just in the last, with the most recent company, I have really discovered how incredible it is, or at least appreciated it. Let's go with that, which is the, you know, my advice to that 25 year old would be to really take advantage, find and take advantage of trusted advisors, trusted experienced advisors, right? Like right now in my current company, I have two really fantastic advisors who have you know, decades of experience in the space, right? Either as CEOs or uh, all of both of them, I think previously as CEOs. And, uh, you know, they're on, you know, I may officially put them on my advisory board and I, I'm meeting with one or the other of them every week, right? That's how much I talk to them. And and it's just amazing how much value they bring. And back to like, I keep thinking I know the answer or I might know the answer and I talk to them and I realize there's a better answer, right? Or I'm just emotionally, you know, 
beaten up, right? And I need to talk to someone to say like, you're doing the right thing. Like, this is normal, stick with it, whatever, right? And so sometimes having cheerleaders is important too. I can say, as I look back when I was 25, I had advisors who were that good, right? I had literally two faculty advisors who were that good. I just didn't use them to the extent I should have, right? I was, I wouldn't say I was dismissive of them, but, but I would say I took them for granted, right? And so perhaps didn't appreciate them as much till later. And they continued, in spite of that, they continued to help me, even when I didn't ask for it, right? But, but if I look back to my 25-year-old, I would say, dude, look at how amazing these advisors can be when you engage them in a more significant way. You know, and, and so even now I have, I'm part of a CEO group, which is a bunch of other CEOs who, you know, they're all like in different fields and different areas, but it's just mind blowing sort of like new insights uh, I have, or just being able to go to them and say like, I got this horrible problem. And then everyone's actually been there before. Right. And can say, oh yeah, this is what I would do. So that would be my advice. Beautiful. If you were to lose all that, you know, and keep only two ideas or two capabilities, or two practices, what would you keep? Oh, man, what I keep. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, I make that joke of if there's only one thing you do, and that's get better every day, like everything else derives from that, right? Like, it's kind of like a, it's like a, it's almost a, you know, a root theorem, right? So I would kind of put that at the core, right? Like, if, if I forgot everything, but all I remembered was that, you know, just try and improve yourself every day, right? Technically, that spectrum will take you to the top. So I would put that kind of probably as one. And so, as you said, there's a lot of names, like the learning mindset or, or whatever, or sort of different names for that, you know, pliable brain. I can't remember the terminology, but number two, man, I'm trying to think of something else that I would really quantify at sort of that same level of foundation. I'm just going to stick with one. Everything else is derived from that. That's great. Well, finally, uh, John, this has been a very rich uh, exploration. Yeah. As we bring this to lending. Yeah, parting, I enjoyed it. What parting wisdom would you want to offer to people listening to uh, create new futures? Well, there was a lot of wisdom in this thing. They should just listen to the whole thing. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know that I have anything new and different to say from the things that, that I've already said. I mean, the you know, it comes back to, in some sense, I guess it comes back to, I'll pull out one thing I said earlier, because it is something that I, I always come back to. And it's something that I share, you know, even with undergrad students, which is, you know, all of life's decisions can really seem overwhelming to you, right? And a number of them. And, but if you pick some greater goal, some big audacious goal, or at least longer term goal, then it can make all those smaller decisions way easier to make, right? And remove your stress significantly. And I think, you know, that philosophy is useful to everybody in every position at every stage of life and manage the stress of making that decision by convincing yourselves that you can change your audacious or goal tomorrow if you need to. So you have a very clear logic in your interior operating system that there is the learning impulse as the overarching practice and there is the audacious goal or the purpose as an organizing principle. And there is a linkage between the two because it's, it's the idea that when you do organize yourself around a, a unifying principle, everything else tends to fall into its place with greater ease. So that, that's, that's awesome. That's really great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. 
and uh, wish yeah. you tremendous success with your company. Thank you. And uh, I enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well, Dave. Thanks for having me.